Hi, everybody. Welcome to the CSAE Research Podcast, a series of conversation about projects taking place at the Center for the Study of African Economies, University of Oxford. I'm Donna Harris. I'm a researcher at CSAE within the Department of Economics and the Director of Studies in Political Economy at the Department for Continuing Education within the University of Oxford. Today, we'll be discussing the project strengthening professionalism and accountability within Ghana Police Service using identity norms and narratives. This is a project funded by Wellspring Philanthropic Fund and run in partnership between CSAE and the Ghana Police Service. The project focuses on improving the functioning of public organizations. So as development economists, we're interested in the functioning of public organizations in developing country. And this project is in Ghana. One of the important factors that drive successful organization is the behavior of people within the organization. In this project, we focus on ethical and professional behavior of the police. And one example that you can think of in terms of unethical behavior is corruption. So we use this as a motivation and example, which has long been a major obstacles to improving economic efficiency and reducing poverty in developing countries. In many places, corruption has become a norm or a way of life, something that's generally accepted as a behavioral standard. The overarching question is, how do we change a corrupt norm or unethical behavior that's become a norm? To address this question, we've designed an innovative ethics training program, working with the Ghana Police Service. And joining me today to discuss the project, what we did and the results, my colleagues, Danila Sarah, Associate Professor in Economics at Texas A&M University, Oana Borkan, Associate Professor in Economics at the University of East Anglia, Bruno Schettini, Secretariat for Coordination and Governance of the Heritage of the Union, the Ministry of Economy in Brazil, and Henry Tully, Country Economist at the International Growth Center at University of Ghana in Legon and the LSE. Welcome, everybody. I just wanted to start with a discussion around our motivations and the questions and the aim of what we, we were trying to do. So this project started off quite a long while ago, 2017 was the first kind of discussion with Stefan Dirkon and Paul Collier and at the time, the head civil servant of the Ghanaian government visited Oxford and we started a discussion around how can we improve public services in general. And the idea of the police service came up you know, in discussion with Stefan and Paul and also with Danila and Awana, which is the most challenging and, and difficult area and there's not been a lot of research done so we wanted to look into how we can improve the the services of the police and the head of civil service in Ghana he he was very welcoming the idea so that was the sort of genesis of the the project and as I said the aim was to try to come up with an intervention that's innovative and try to change focusing on behavioral change um, rather than structural change or resources, but more thinking about attitudes and behavior. We started discussing also with uh, within the Blavatnik School in Oxford to look at 
someone who could collaborate with who has experience in the police service and that's when Bruno's name came up and then we got in touch also with the International Growth Center and and I went to to Ghana to to visit the university and Henry and I met and we started talking about the project so maybe at this point I think to bring Henry and Bruno in in terms of how the the implementation of the intervention, the design of the training developed. I'll hand over to to Henry and Bruno to talk a little bit about this. Okay, thank you. I I think one of the motivations was that in in Ghana, the perception about police-related corruption, as you said, is is very high uh, compared to the perceived corruption in other public institutions. Uh, for instance, in 2019, it was an Afrobarometer survey which essentially showed that most people view the police institution as the most corrupt public institution in Ghana at that time. Uh, for instance, they, they showed that 42% of the respondents paid bribes to the police to avoid having a problem with them. 39% paid bribes to get assistance uh, from the police. of the respondents said they believe that either all or most of the police officers are involved in corruption. So these statistics point to potential weaknesses in the values, ethics, and professional behavior of police officers. And we believe that the situation, though unfortunate, provides an opportunity or the study of how to improve integrity in such such an institution. So fortunately for us, uh, I think at that time, the police themselves, were interested in learning how they can make improvements that will lead to a change in the public image. We started working with them and we we wanted to uh, implement a randomized control trial to to measure the impact of an ethics training program. But first, we had to design that program. And that is where Bruno and a few other experts that we, we relied on came in. Did a baseline survey to try to understand how the police themselves view themselves and you know, to also assess the integrity and uh, the professionalism within the service, but also to just look at what the original motives um, of officers were when they were, at the time they were trying to join. So all of this information from the baseline helped us to design the, the training. Bruno can share a bit more about training. Thank you, my friend. I believe that when we looked at the data that you just talked about, this, this baseline that addresses how do they see, how do they perceive themselves as police officers? Uh, we got a, an interesting view of a, a distance that might have between how they were seeing themselves and why did they decide to join the police in the first time. So that's where we started our approach. We have a very interesting experience from Brazil that we applied at the Federal Highway Police Department, where over the last 20 years, we were able to overcome the corruption problem, although 
many police departments in Brazil still face it as an epidemic. So not too far from what we've discovered from the data in Ghana. So Brazil and Africa have a lot of similarities also in this, in this field. So what we decided to do in terms of implementing the training program was to do something different. So step away from discussing corruption. We avoided talking about the problem itself in order not to encourage it or to just focus on the problem. We wanted to do something different to show them that there is a distance between why they decided to join and how they see themselves today. And, and why did that happen? Well, what got lost in the middle of the way and what can they do about it? How powerful a police officer can be if motivated in the right direction. How powerful they can be if they do that as a group. In these structures as the military, as police departments, uh, people get not likely to go forward to approach certain problems. And what they do is they shut down and they just follow protocol. And when protocol is corruption, then the problem just gets growing and growing. So what we try to do is that show them, some of them, maybe most of them don't like the system. Most of them want to do something different. And if we show them a way to do it, if we show them that there are other benefits instead of just the easy pocket money that they get from an act of corruption, that there are other forms of, let's say, payment that would benefit much more from it. So the approach was getting them to understand that if they get back to that identity that they wanted in the first place, work as a team, if they get some sort of payback from this group behavior, things would change a lot. So this was uh, the basic form of approach that we tried to apply to the, to the training. Great. Thank you, Henry and Bruno. So the motivation we had in terms of economic theory was kind of based around the idea of identity and also intrinsic motivation. We're trying to understand what was the first intrinsic motivation that motivated them to join in the first place and can we reactivate that motivation maybe you can talk a little bit about the actual curriculum that we did would be really nice what went on during the training so bruno back to you we divided the course into two days spread over two weeks and that was crucial to the strategy because if we want to do a collective action we needed time for them to interact uh, over what they've learned in day one. So it was really important for them to go back to their jobs, to their normal life, go back home and have some time for that knowledge, for that discussion to grow and the knowledge to sink in. So this was uh, part of the strategy. First day, we addressed the identity part individually. So why did you join? trying to get them to talk about why did they decide to become a police officer? And, and we got a lot of good feedback. And from that, we stroked them with the perception of the public and themselves about what the research brought us. So they were off track. As a team, they were off track. So from that, we started to discuss uh, values. 
So let's get back to it. Why did you choose it? Uh, uh, what makes you strong? Is it good for you to get home and your kids see you in that uniform? Do you feel proud of, about it? Uh, when someone that is using the same uniform as you does something wrong, does it affect you? Can you look the other way when someone is uh, attenting to the character and, and everything that this uniform represents? So we move that feeling around the room a lot with different kinds of exercises and putting them to work together. And, and once we got them to uh, rank the best values that they had, not only individually, but as a team, we went to day two where we wanted to show them how to communicate that and how to use that team strength where we, uh, we used a lot the image of this group working together. We put them to do exercises together where one only a part of the team could see, only another part of the team could hear, only another part could use their hands. So they couldn't do what they could individually. They couldn't do it alone. They needed to do it as a team. Day two was really focused on team building, team effort, and also how to communicate that. And in the very end, constructing an idea that they can deliver change. To wrap up the course, we put them in groups to think about what they could do different as a group and individually. And they wrote some sort of commitment for them to individually keep it in the letter so they could take a look at it in the future and see if they reach that goal. So it's kind of a, a commitment to themselves that they can proceed with that change. Thank you, Bruno. You know, listening to you again, even though we did we did all this uh, together, I feel inspired again, I have to say. Just to finish this off, we also, uh, six months later on, or a little bit more, we also had a ceremony to present lapel pin to the agents of change. So that's what we call them at the very end. It was, it's almost like a graduation ceremony. Maybe, Henry, you can talk a little bit about the, the graduation ceremony and from your perspective as Ghanaian you, you did you feel that you know this was inspired how do you think it, it went yes so I, I think with the environment that is a hierarchical organization and so we had to think through how best to to get the the junior ranks to be able to also contribute to making change because because it's a um, hierarchical organization it's, it's it's very difficult for junior ranks to to make any any influence so there, there are 33 police districts in the greater Accra region which is the the capital of Ghana the largest city where our, our research is focused we randomly selected 21 out of the, the 33 districts and targeted the training at most of the officers in, in, in these uh, districts. So it was groups of people from the district who got the training. So the change uh, between the senior and the junior ranks was similar at least. And they all had the same template to, to, to start with. And when we went for the um, 
award ceremony. And th this was a while after the training. And you could see that they were really proud to be part of the training. And they, they shared a few testimonies of how that itself you know, is beginning to change, not just the way they look at what they are doing, their work, but also how they relate to their, their senior officers. So I think it was, it was very useful. The ceremony itself, we had senior police officers putting a lapel pin on their dress to distinguish them from, from all the other police. And they really appreciated that. Thank you, Henry. And um, just to add, uh, Bruno, we'll, we'll come uh, back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sorry, if you, you, if, you, if you allow me. Another sensitive part of it was police officers. We not normally, we don't accept influence. We don't like people telling us how to do our jobs. I mean, this is something human beings, in a way, they, we all are. But um, law enforcement people, they, they know how to do it. And you need to go to them and, and make an approach like we did. It was very sensitive. So um, I think that this was very well thought in the deliver of the process uh, of bringing also another police officer from a different environment, but still an environment that has a close connection to Africa. So this was also uh, interesting to allow us to do it in a very softer way. Yeah, no, that's a great point and actually nicely leads to the challenges. And, and I think you're right. I mean, we try, you know, to to bring that identity, the 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 person who's delivering the course um, has to be someone that they identify with. And you're, you know, you made a, a good point about the fact that it's another police officer is not going to, you know, work as well if it was a, a researcher, for example, you know, and, and it, it seems when I was observing it, they, they completely listen and that they, completely connected to you and the examples but there were some questions around Brazil it's not things are not the same in Ghana so maybe we can discuss a little bit about how we dealt with that it's culturally it's very different so how how did we deal with that so maybe you want you want to come in I think that one of the the, the approaches that we use this uh, first try to reinforce other things that we are very similar before going to the points that might have this sort of reaction that you just said. So we addressed some football, we addressed being south, south, uh, from the South Hemisphere, uh, things about food, things about being happy and, and, and carnival and full of colors and et cetera. So trying to show them that we have a lot alike. So this was uh, the first point. Um, considering Brazil to be perceived as Ghanaians as a very developed country, uh, we try to show them that uh, we are in some parts of the country, but in others, we are way, way worse than most African countries. So we are a very big and diverse uh, uh, country um, with lacks of infrastructure and, and money and, and education and et cetera, name it, in some parts of the country. Um, so I think this is the main part that we show them. You, we are just like you, but we are 15 years ahead. So we have already uh, walked the path 
So it's easier for you to walk now. So that's what I'm trying, we are trying to show you guys. If you do this, you will do, you will walk this path in a shorter, in a faster pace. So this is kind of how we try to, uh, uh, you know, break the, the, the distance of it. Henry, um, would you like to come in? I was just going to add that they, in the end, they could really relate to the examples that Bruno was, was using uh, in, in the training. And, you know, it, but I think the other thing that also uh, reduced their focus on Brazil and Ghana is focusing on the goals and the sort of the, the intrinsic values they had before. It was it was not that Bruno was bringing those values or those uh, motivations from from Brazil. They felt that okay, this is what you know majority of us are saying, and this is what we want to achieve. So they were able to own the the goals or you know the the vision, and you know by the end it didn't matter too much uh, or at all, whether uh, Bruno was from Brazil or anywhere else. Now we're going to move on. Now that we've delivered a training, we've done the randomization that Henry mentioned. We've got the results and we also did the end line a bit later on with the phone survey because we had to change due to COVID. And we were going to do the face-to-face -face interview, which is what we did in the baseline, but we had to, to change to phone. And we had the results. So I just wanted to invite Oana and Danila to talk about the main results, maybe Oana first on the statistical analysis. And then we did experiment as well um, as part of the, the baseline and endline interviews. And Danila, I would invite you to, to talk more about that result and maybe the overall um, outcomes and the highlights of what we found from our training. Thank you, Donna. I thought I might start by just saying, wow, thank you for this wonderful discussion. It was so interesting to hear and I'm thoroughly impressed by the teamwork you've all put together. And it's lovely to just hear Bruno's and Henry's impressions about how, how the training went. And it, it was clearly very impactful. And we saw that in the reactions of the officers um, and in, in the aftermath of the training, but we also saw some of the footage and that was just really impressive for, for us as a team. How do you follow in, in their footsteps in telling the story? Perhaps I can talk a little bit about the challenges to measuring the impact of such a training. And maybe I should talk about the, the, the main thing, which is the measurement. How do you measure the impact of the training in the longer run? So it, obviously it had a great reaction at the time of the training, but uh, is the impact long lasting? And that is very important for us as academics to be able to, to identify and, and measure. And so we, what we were trying to capture here were, first of all, uh, subtle changes in the attitudes and beliefs uh, of the officers about what is ethical or unethical and what their mission is. And you may think of these as rather intangible things to, to try and assess. But it turns out that uh, you know, surveys and well-designed questions can definitely capture 
very well the shift in the mindset towards integrity. And so the team worked really hard on designing that comprehensive questionnaire at baseline and also um, on adjusting that questionnaire for the phone survey uh, 20 months after the training. Uh, but we also wanted to capture the actual behavior of officers in a situation that can simulate very well the reality of uh, being put in front of the decision to be ethical or not. So if I can just go back a little bit to the, to the survey, I wanted to highlight that we asked a set of questions not only on their values, and you know the, the values uh, can 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 subsume many things, such as what is important for them uh, um, in in their role as officers, whether and how organizational norms can change, whether they believe that education can make that change, and you know their original motivation for joining the uh, police force. Uh, but also we wanted to know a little bit about whether um, they would or did report unethical behavior that they've witnessed amongst colleagues within the organization and whether they monitored their officers uh, for those of them who were team leaders at the time of the survey. Um, we also asked a little bit about their perceptions about the overall level of corruption in the police and in their particular district where they were stationed. And we also wanted to know about their relationship to the citizens. So these are some of the questions that we asked and that we then um, used and aggregated the answers to in order to obtain some of our indexes which measure these attitudes and beliefs. And then in terms of the actual behavior, we, and, and this is quite common in experimental um, economics and now in experiments in the field, is to use a a situation or a scenario, which is which is practically a game, but is a game where there are real incentives to behave in a certain way or another. So in this particular game that we designed, and it was a game inspired by a design in a paper by Abler, Becker and Falk in 2014 in the Journal of Public Economics. In this particular game, the officers had to toss a coin four times. And that was under the assumption that everyone has a coin lying around somewhere in their house. House, uh, or wherever they were they were seated at the time of the survey. And so tossing a, um, a coin four times, they would have to tell us how many times they got tails. So the number of tails is the outcome we were interested in here primarily. Now, the more tails they reported, the more money they would actually earn um, at the end of the uh, survey with us. So there was some money at stake. Um, and so there is an incentive here to cheat um, because, well, individually, you cannot be observed. You're doing this toy course in private, so you can't really, your behavior cannot really be seen by the enumerator or by the, the researcher. Secondly, you know, the more you misrepresent the truth, the more um, you're likely to earn. So obviously, for us as researchers, we could not observe individual behavior, and that's why we cannot say that an officer or another lied. Um, and that is actually a, um, a, an attractive feature of the design because it allows us to create more uh, that, that situation where the officer is comfortable uh, expressing themselves as, as, as they wish. The nice feature though here is that we can still observe aggregate cheating behavior uh, because, well, we know that theoretically only about 25% of the officers should tell uh, that they had three tails. 
um, as just a part of the theoretical dis probability distribution. And so if we observe that more than that proportion of officers report three tails or four tails, then we know that a little bit of cheating or a bit more cheating has actually happened. So that's a little bit on the side of how we measured the outcomes. This was all very feasible for the phone survey, uh, which actually didn't take too long to carry out. And then the second challenge is, well, once you have these measures, which are fairly accurate representations of the attitudes and behavior of, of officers, you then have to ask, well, how do I use these measures in order to, to attribute the change in these measures or um, you know, the results that these measures give us to the training and not to something else or some intrinsic characteristics of the officers. So the point here is how do you identify the impact of the training using these measures? And this is where the randomized control trial design comes in, where only a part of the officers were allocated to receive the training and that part was determined um, randomly. So we had, I believe, about 20, 21 districts which received the offer to uh, take the training and 11 uh, districts were left as control districts and they didn't receive an offer for the training. Um, from the 21 districts, only about half of the officers who were stationed in those districts took the training. Obviously, not all of them could because uh, they were on a duty rota and so uh, they had to man the traffic at the time that the training took place. And the half who uh, took the training was also randomly determined according to that duty roster that police have. And so from that, we know that those who take the training, so the treated ones, are very similar in terms of their underlying characteristics to those who didn't take the training um, or, didn't, or, or were not offered the training. And that is critical because um, when we look at our measures and compare our measures, um, our value indexes and um, reporting, monitoring, um, relationship to citizen indexes across um, officers who took the training and those who didn't, then we know that uh, the difference, if there is a difference, it is only due to the training and not something else. And it might be that this is a good place for me to hand over to Danila to talk a little bit about what we found or if she wanted to add anything on the, on the design itself. Thank you, Anna. I think this remaining time, I'm going to maybe mention the result, the main results, which are very exciting. So as Joanna mentioned, we have uh, five survey measures of outcomes, uh, a value index that measures our primary outcome of interest. It's an index that aggregates um, officers' identity as service providers, their beliefs about organizational norms, the possibility of changing um, organizational norms, their attitudes. And, and then another crucial outcome that we outcome area that we have is this index that measure attitudes towards citizens and relationship with citizens. And these are indeed um, outcomes that were targeted in the training as uh, Henry and, and Donna and Bruno explained very carefully. Uh, those were, were targeted in a number of modules during the training. And we indeed see that the trained officers in the treatment districts score significantly higher, both on the values index and the relationship index. And those are both, uh, as, as Anna explained, uh, generated by the survey. 
Moreover, we have a significant impact on our measure of uh, willingness to engage in unethical behavior as measured by the incentivized game, the cheating game that Oana mentioned. And there um, we can, first of all, compare the, the empirical distribution of reported coin flips with the theoretical distribution. And we see that for the trained officers, there's evidence of the two being more similar to each other as compared to the control districts, where we see uh, much more evidence of cheating. Um, but also in the regression analysis, we see that the likelihood of reporting a number of tails out of, remember in the game, they had to, the to toss a coin four times and report how many tails they, they obtain. So the probability or the likelihood to rep of reporting more than two tails or three tails um, is much, much lower, significantly lower for the officers that were trained in treatment districts. We do not see any impact of the treatments on the untrained officers in treatment districts, meaning that um, really there was no spillover of the training on the untrained officers in the, in the treatment districts. Um, and, and to us, this is evidence that you really had to be at the training, you had to be discussing these issues and uh, participating in all of these activities led by Bruno in order to be affected by that. So participation is, is crucial here. Another set of results that I would briefly want to mention has to do with mechanism, because you know I, I think, as Donna said, um, Bruno and Harry have done this amazing job explaining uh, the training and all the work that went into conceiving the training and implementing the training. And one of the mechanisms that we thought would be a play here is this identity, this intrinsic motivation to serve the public that officers might have had when they first joined the police and they might they might have lost it um, over time. And that one of the purpose of the training, as, as was discussed, is to reactivate um, these intrinsic motivations, prime this identity of service provider or provider that officers might have lost. Um, and so one of the things that we do with the data is also to see whether there are heterogeneous effects of the training by initial intrinsic motivations to serve the public when the officers join the police. And we have this measure from the baseline survey. We asked officers why they joined the police in the first place, and about 60% of them across the board in all districts, um, they say that they joined to serve the community. And so we see that when we look at treatment effects by that variable, we see that the impact of the training is really uh, coming primarily from officers that were intrinsically motivated when they joined the police. Um, and the officers that were never intrinsically motivated and never had this identity of a service provider, uh, they were not really uh, impacted by the training. And so this, this is really kind of consolidated, this the main mechanism through which the, the training worked, this, this identity that the Madonna mentioned in the very beginning, uh, this is what we wanted to activate, what we wanted to prime, and we also wanted to create this new group identity of, service, of agent of change. And so all of those, I think from the data, we see that all of those work pretty well together and they ended up uh, impacting the officers the way that we, even, even more than, than what we, we thought would be possible in such a short time. I would like to mention also the, the relationship with citizen index results, because that is uh, that is an index. So this is, this is an outcome variable that was also, as I said, um, strongly affected by the training. So we see that they train officers 
report or score much higher on this index, showing, and, and this suggests that their attitudes and the relationship with citizens have improved uh, as a result of the training. And for this, for this outcome, we also see that the impact um, is strong for officers that were not intrinsically motivated when they joined the police. And so this is kind of a silver lining for us because you know, even though on the one hand, we found that being intrinsically motivated to serve the public when you first join the police is important to be able to really be affected by this training. There are some modules of the training, in particular those communication technique that Bruno was talking about, that actually are very effective also for officers that do not have this uh, identity of service provider, or at least you know they didn't have it at the very beginning, uh, and so their relationship with citizens in general could be really impacted uh, through these these training models that um, that we discussed here. Thanks, um, Awana and Danila. I think that was very concise and uh, brought out all the highlights of our key findings. One thing to add is that when we did the, the end line, it was actually about 20 months afterwards. So just wanted to point out that we feel that it was an experimental demand effect because we did it so long after and it seemed to have lasted. I think um, Awana kind of mentioned it, alluded to earlier about the long lasting effect of this type of training. And it seems like, you know, even 20 months later, which is when we did the end line, they're still uh, remember and that their behavior actually did change as a result of the training. I just wanted to add that we're in discussion with the, the Ghana police as, in terms of the next step. So this seems to have worked. So let's see where we go next from here. And I want to thank everybody for joining us, Daniela, Awana, Bruno, Henry. This has been a long-term project. We started in 2017, as I said, and it's, it's so nice to see the paper is, is coming out soon. Uh, we're going to present it at the CSAE conference as well. And finally, I want to thank the Ghana Police Service and uh, especially Dr. Sasu Mensa. Jerome, Kanyok, and all the officers that we've worked with. And last but not least, our team of amazing enumerators in Ghana, led by Sami, who sadly we lost along the way, and uh, Wisdom, who, who took over and has done an amazing job, and the rest of the team of 15 enumerators, and they've done an amazing, amazing job. So thank you. And thank you, CSAE, for organizing this. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you. <laughs>